0: righty all righty let 's jump into our message for today. Can I trust the Bible? How many of you have um have wondered about some of the as- some aspects of the Bible and wondered man is is everything in here can i can i can I trust all of this um, some of the bible's claims are pretty incredible and pretty amazing won't you agree i mean it 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 talks about raising the dead and it talks about um you know various Things that are kind of outlandish if you think of a normal life. And so sometimes I've, I've found that um, Scripture, as much as I, as I believe it's the Word of God, I sometimes find it difficult to believe all of it by face value. And one thing I've learned is that the Bible wants us to obey it and then understanding will come. How many of you parents have ever told one of your children this? Just trust me, listen to me, and soon you'll see. How many of you have used that line of logic to kind of just explain to them, listen, I know something that you don't, and if you just follow along with me, soon you'll understand. I believe that's how the Bible works with us. The Bible asks us to just trust it, listen to it, and then soon understanding will come. Biblically speaking, obedience comes before understanding. If you do not obey, sometimes you'll never get to understand. And so God wants us to live a life of faith with Him. And so many of us have put our trust in the Bible. Many of us have believed, and that's why we're here today. That's why we're actually saved. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the message about Christ. Am I correct? And so also in Romans ten it says like, you know, how can people believe on, on uh, until, unless they are told what to believe in? And how can somebody hear a message what they need to hear if somebody does not tell that to them? So the Bible's message needs to be told. It needs to be spread. And as we hear the message of the Word of God over and over and over again, it starts forming a um, it starts forming a relationship with our with our innermost being that constantly encourages us to trust it. And through various of our experiences with God, the Holy Spirit, the Church, life, we learn to trust the Bible's. Message and its guidance, and as we do that, the Bible's objectives come true in our life. I believe that the Bible has an agenda, and that agenda is to help each and every one of us become like Jesus Christ. First and foremost, get into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then to become more like Him. Um, And so, my goal today is to give y'all great reasons to believe in the Bible. I want to give you great reasons why you can trust. The Bible. Alright, so this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson. I'm going to tell you some things about the Bible, and we'll use some scripture to talk and, and preach from the Bible as well. But sometimes it's necessary, especially if you want to help people to trust the Bible, to show them how awesome and how widely acknowledged this book is that we call the Bible. Now next week we'll talk more about how's the Bible put together, how did we get the 66 books that's currently included in the canon, what is the Old Testament, what is the New Testament, and how do I interpret Scripture. So we'll get into that next week. But this week I'm just going to talk about why can you and I have confidence in the Bible. All right, so Smith Wigglesworth was, how many of you have heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Smith Wigglesworth, guess what? He was a plumber. He sucked honey for money. Uh, we have in South Africa, we have these uh, septic tank, uh, you know, clearing uh, companies, and they always say, you know, they have these slogans, these very quirky slogans. One of them is like, "We suck honey for money." They call them honey suckers in South Africa. <laughs> It's a way to make what they do feel a little better, I guess. (laughs) Smith Wigglesworth was a plumber. He dealt with the not-so-bright side of life. And he was an everyday normal man until he found the Bible, until he found what the life that was contained in the Bible and his life got completely transformed and then he became one of the greatest evangelists of the late 18th, uh, 1800s, early 1900s. This man um, raised people from the dead, healed many people, led uh, revival meetings that you cannot believe and um, was, was, was just a mighty evangelist used by God. But Smith Wigglesworth wasn't an extravagant man. He wasn't a polished person. He was a very simple guy that with all of his mistakes and roughness, because he was still very rough, a rough diamond, he made amazing things happen for the kingdom of God because of his childlike faith in this thing we called the Bible. I'm going to quote something that is actually in a historic artifact. This is Smith Wigglesworth's actual Bible and uh, inscriptions that he wrote with his own hand in the back of his Bible. You can't read it, but if you want to come later up close, I'll show it to you. It actually says what I'm about to read you. He says, Never compare this book with other books. Comparisons are dangerous. Never think or say that this book contains the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It is supernatural in origin, eternal in duration, inexpressible in value. It's infinite in scope, regenerative in power, infallible in authority, universal in interest, personal in application, and inspired in totality. And then he says this, read through it, write it down, pray it in, walk it out, and pass it on. It is the Word of God. He had such a passion for the Word of God and, and Man, I want to grow to be as passionate about the Word of God as Smith Wigglesworth was. I want to be believing the Word of God with the simplicity of mind that a normal plumber from England believed the way he approached the Word. Because I know that if we have childlike faith, and we have faith as small as a mustard seed, God can make miracles happen through us. And God can make massive changes happen around us through our faith-filled actions uh, and obedient obedient actions um so i want to say to you today that in in trying to trying to encourage you to really believe the word of god if you will and this is just me from my own personal testimony if you will dig into the word of god you will accept its guidance and its wisdom it will lead you to life and it'll also lead you to god it'll also lead you to get to know the most Important, but also the uh, most amazing Father that there can be. And you will find yourself, upon obeying it, in a relationship with this God that makes everything inside of your life make sense and, 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 and drives you to honor Him with everything in you. But if you do not believe the full Scripture sh- counsel of Scripture, if you have doubts in your mind about the Bible, that means that you will have gaps in your armor where the, the attempts and the attacks of the enemy can pierce into your soul and really bring destruction. In fact, the enemy is out to neutralize us and to render us ineffective in the kingdom of God. So we'll just, maybe he lost the battle to get us saved, sure, but nothing more is going to happen because we do not have faith and confidence in God's Word that is meant to protect us from His wiles. Our vision is to reach people and build lives. But it's not just to build lives for any reason. It's to build lives on the rock. That is Jesus Christ. And so our desire is for each and every one of your lives to start getting found on Jesus and the way Jesus guides us through life and what He has called us to do. Because in that you find your calling your destiny. In that you find fulfillment that you so much desire. But today I'm not here to defend the Bible because somewhat... The same as Charles Spurgeon who said, defend the Bible, I would sooner defend a lion. The Bible does not really need us to defend it. You will much sooner need to defend a lion than you'll actually need to defend the Bible. The Bible does an awesome job at defending itself. The Bible is able to make us see, and I'm going to try to do that today, that it is a trustworthy document and its claims can be trusted. Um, some of us who grew up in a Christian environment, you know, we were taught this is the Word of God from, you know, yay High. and so sometimes when somebody says, "Well, how do you know, you know, you can trust the Bible?" Our answer is well, because it's the Word of God, you know, and that makes sense to us. But that doesn't make sense to everybody. They might ask, "Well, how do you know it's the Word of God?" Well, it says so, <laughs> and you're like, "Well." What about those other books that also says stuff? Do you just take it off of its own testimony about itself? Can you can we see the dilemma we have here? You know, the Book of Mormon claims that it is the truth. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses' book claims it is the truth, and, and so does the Quran and any other religious you know document out there that says, "Hey, this is true because it says so." <laughs> well, I want to put you to at ease this morning because the Bible. Not only does it say it is the truth, it ha- also proves itself truth, well, li- at least trustworthy and reliable and accurate through many other ways that has nothing to do with the content of the words in it. And I want to show you guys that so that you today will have many reasons for why you can believe that the Bible is a trustworthy document. If the Bible is a trustworthy document, it means we can apply it to every aspect of our lives. We do not have to doubt its applicability in business, in uh, friendships, in relationships, in marriages. We do not have to doubt its applicability in parenting. You can know and have confidence that if you apply its principles, it will lead to life. And that is why it's so important for us to really understand why we can trust the Bible? Because if we don't, we tend to selectively apply it to our lives. If you just selectively apply it, you will never reach the actual objective that it has for your life. The Bible is a living document, and it wants to help you to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Um, the late Rabbi Zacharias he was a he was a more modern day uh, he was a modern day. Evangelist. Um, he only—he de- actually died this year. To be honest, he—he um, uh, he was a great evangelist. He helped many, many, many uh, atheists and agnostics uh, come to understand that their claim of God's for God's non-existence were 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 simply not found. Many believers he helped to think biblically. He—they have a slogan in his organizations: "We help—we um, help thinkers believe." And we help believers think <laughs> as we need both, right So Ravi Zacharias, we in the Christian world, everybody has immense respect for even not just what he said, but the manner in which he said it. He was a real, authentic uh, representative of Jesus, his compassion and love even towards those who were. And a mustic towards him and his beliefs. He always treated people with respect. He never once made somebody feel stupid about not believing the same way he did. And yet he convinced many, many, many to believe what the Bible claims. He said this, why read the Bible? And I believe this is one of the most important reasons why we should read the Bible. Because through the pages of the four biographies in the New Testament, a.k.a. the Gospels, one encounters a historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, whose powerful personality continues to resonate and impact lives 2,000 years on. Second Timothy 3:15 says this: "From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we don't read the Bible to just learn religious facts. We read the Bible to encounter God. We read the Bible to get to know more about Him and to build a greater, more intimate, and more passionate relationship with Him. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand His Word as we read it so that it becomes alive on the inside of us so that we literally can encounter this Word as a living document that speaks to us. So the, but the Bible defends its own trustworthiness worthiness through through other means than just its claims. And let me just say that I'm not even touching on um, the evidences of uh, fulfilled prophecy, uh, that there are plenty of. Uh, the Old Testament, um, I'm going to speak about this more next week, how the Old Testament um, literally sets up the New Testament, and the New Testament literally proves the Old Testament and reveals all of the things that were hidden in the news. It's a beautiful, beautiful compilation and uh, a way that the Bible interacts with itself in interpreting. We always say, Scripture interprets Scripture. If you can't find Scripture to corroborate a thought that you might have about something in Scripture, then your thought is wrong, because Scripture always confirms what Scripture means. But the Bible defends itself through secular secular ways as well, non-religious, non-spiritual ways. Um, and I want to show some of these to you today because it it just adds <laughs> to it just adds to the whole argument that we can trust the Bible that we can really apply it to our lives. So the Bible proves its trustworthiness through its accuracy, its reliability and its relevance. I'll make some comments about that now. So hold on to your seats it's going to it's going to feel like a little history lesson but really I'm talking about the word of God and remember this is why it is so okay for us and this is why it's so logical for us to actually believe that this book is dependable and that if it is just if it's accurate reliable and relevant it means that i can take the next step not based on blind faith and just you know i'm just doing this because everybody does it but it's a next logical step if it has all these factors in place i can take the step of faith believing its claims and then responding according to that. So historians use a couple of tests to check out ancient literature to see if this is even something, it's fact-checking. We all know what fact-checking is these days, right? So they use these tests to fact-check um, historical writings and, uh, and, and, and thereby e- establish its veracity. And so we're going to talk about accuracy now, and the test they use that, uh, to do that is called the bibliographic test. And essentially all this test does is it asks the question whether um, the Bible you have today is accurate. Is it the same as the Bible that was written when it was first compiled? So essentially it looks at history and it looks at how do we know whether a document is consistent all across history. Can you trust that the Bible you have today is the Bible that Jesus lived and the Bible that the disciples captured. Is it still the same words, the same truths, the same principles? And so when I read it, I can bank on it that Jesus said this. I can bank on it that this actually happened, not in a fairy tale, but in recorded history. So I want to I use three ancient documents that everybody believes to be true. I'm going to show you just now. And then I'm going to apply, I'm going to show you how they got to be with us and what we believe ab- ab- about them. And then I'm going to show you how the Bible just knocks all that out of the park. You all ready? Okay. How many of you have heard of Plato before? Plato was an ancient Greek philosopher and essentially he was a student of Socrates and he was a teacher of Aristotle. And his writings contain the dialogues between him and Socrates, Socrates teaching him and he leaving this behind to teach his, his disciple Aristotle. And they were basically explaining a lot that was later used as the foundation of Western thought, Western thinking right how we see the world and how we judge judge about things so he wrote this document it's called the republic he wrote this document 400 years before jesus was born yet the earliest copy we actually have of it is from the 9th century that means there was a 1300 year span between when plato lived and wrote this versus the actual first and earliest copy that we have of it You'll th- Think that there could have been some variation, some things that happened in those thousands and more years to the original writings of what he wrote. I mean, we can make a circle right now and play telephone, right? And I can whisper something in Chris's ears by the time it gets to the back to Miss Mabel. It's going to be an entirely different story, right? You'll know that that little game. Things can happen over time. And that's an important aspect of historical writings because you want to be able to say, hey, what we have today is an accurate rendition of what actually happened. We only have seven copies of Plato's The Republic. And yet it has formed our modern day understanding of ethics in government. Essentially, one of the big questions asked in this document is, is it always good to act justly? Or is it sometimes justifiable to act unjustly? And it works off of the actual godly concept that the end never justifies the means. That the means has to be as holy as the end. Now I know this is real philosophical, but just catch the understanding of the importance of what this guy wrote. How much of Western life it has influenced. And we have just seven copies of this document. But we believe it to be absolutely true. How many of you have ever tried to disprove the existence of Plato and what he wrote? No one even dares to do it. All right, Let me show you another one. Julius Caesar. Anybody ever heard of Julius Caesar? Right? He's one of the most well-known Caesars, yet he was the actually most short-lived Caesar. Uh, by the time he became Caesar, a year later he got assassinated. And then his follower up Lived his dream and had many more years as Caesar uh, at that time. But Julius was a Roman general, and he espoused these great ideas for the Roman Empire, and he fought wars to try in his conquest to for Roman domination. But he was also the guy that transitioned Rome from a republic to a dictatorship to an empire, and he he claimed himself, or or you know, he um, how do you say that? He capped himself as being Caesar, Uh, and then shortly after that people didn't like him um, assassinated him but while he was fighting these wars for domination he wrote he wrote down all the accounts of the battles and we call these the, ba- the Gallic, the Gallic wars all right and these were written a um, hundred years before jesus christ and yet now the earliest copy we have of it is from the ninth century in other words a thousand year gap between when Julius Caesar lived and fought these wars and recorded the battle um, you know, accounts and the earliest copy we actually have of that. We only have 10 copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. And yet nobody even dares to wonder, <laughs> was Julius Caesar a real person and did the things he said happen, happen or not? We accept them as truth because the way we've treated these these documents have been as as real history. Alright. How many of you have heard of Homer? The last one. Homer. He's the original homeboy of ancient, uh, 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 ancient writings. He wrote his things in 800 before Christ. And the earliest copy we have of his writings is 400 BC. You know what he wrote? He wrote two poems called the Iliad and the Odyssey. And essentially they... They cover um, the the ten year time span. It's reflections and contemplations of the Trojan Wars against the dynasty of Troy, and how they tried to take in and, and, and conquer Troy. And when they captured the queen, um, the following one was the, the the last poem was contemplations of hey, should we return this queen to her home or should we just keep her? And it was all sorts of you know co- you know re- 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 thinking about about things like that, captured in a poem. So really, um, some argue that Homer wasn't the only contributor to that, but um, most say that th- at least the bulk of it was was him. Again, we have a 400-year gap, and already, because of it being so far back, there's a lot of dispute in academia as to whether Homer is in fact an individual, or whether he was just... Um, an idea of a company of people that would, you know, contribute thoughts about this time period, but most often people would conclude that, no, there was an actual Homer, but they also say that some parts of those poems were were ad, ad, added later on. So just in 400 years already, there is discrepancy as to whether those documents are in fact still trustworthy as the original. Yet, we all still say that Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, and from that we get our historic view of what happened during that time. They believe that these documents, these ancient documents that I just mentioned, are to be around 95% accurate, right? At least 95% accurate. And so we accept them as actual history, okay? Let's apply that to the Bible. Y'all ready? Let's do the New Testament first. Okay. The New Testament was written roughly between the, the years of 50 and 100 A.D. after the death, after the birth of Jesus Christ. All right, so Jesus died around about 30, 33, 34 A.D. And um, then after that, a couple of years went by before the disciples started capturing all of Jesus' life and everything on pages. And the first one uh, believed is to be the, the Gospel of Mark. Even though Matthew is first in the Bible, um, it's for a different reason why the chronology of the Bible is set in the way it is. Um, it's not necessarily time chronology. Um, so Mark was the first one that was written. And in fact, it was, um, it was written uh, by a guy called John Mark. Okay, So this is the first, and then all of the New Testament writings were completed at least within the next a couple of years, a couple of decades to basically say that it's very possible for the whole New Testament to have been written while the original people that experienced Jesus were still alive. They were still alive. And that's an important thing for us to note because who will you trust more? Somebody that actually lived through it to explain to you what happened or somebody who wrote about it 400 years later? Like just the other day, I met a World War II veteran. He's my neighbor, Mr. Noah Monso. Many of y'all know him from no- Monso's shoe store here in, here in Crowley, right? He's a, he lived and fought in World War II. Shipped to Africa, landed in South Africa, he told me his story, shipped them from South Africa off to France. He fought in a battle, um, a couple of battles up to a particular place where he was shot in his legs and he had shrapnel all, all over his back. He was put in a hospital and he told me his journey back home. You know what? <laughs> I kind of believe him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> how, how things happened, I kind of believe him because he was there. He experienced it firsthand. The New Testament writings was based on people's experience who lived through the whole life of Jesus, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And the beginning of the church, and everything that happened, and the decisions that they make, all of those people lived through it. And their experiences were captured in the writings of the, what we know now is called the New Testament. So basically, there is a 25 year gap between the first copy that we have of New Testament writings and when they actually finished writing the New Testament. Just 25 years. So we don't actually have the original, original paper that they wrote on. But the first copy that we have is 125 years AD old, which means it was the gap between the actual events and the people who lived through it, writing it, and the copy we have of it is so short. It's just 25 years. But get this, there are over 24,000 copies in existence. And get this even more, that these copies are all 99.5% the same. Just think about that for a little bit. Think about the weight that we place on the writings of Plato, Caesar, and Homer. And ask yourself, are we putting enough weight on the Bible? Are we acknowledging the Bible strong enough in what it, what it claims of itself? In the light of just what I just shared with you right now, you should have a serious, serious check if you do not acknowledge the Bible in its current form as being an accurate version of the original last part of accuracy the Old Testament Old Testament flips back to a little bit before Christ. It was written before Jesus arrived on, on the scene um, and there's a lot of years that went by where the uh, different of the biblical books were written. Job is believed to be the oldest one um, so roughly one thousand two hundred to one hundred sixty five BC and all across that, 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 that time frame, some of the books were written and our youngest copy. Until recently, used to be a copy from, the, from 900 A.D. You know, words, 900 years after Jesus' birth was the youngest copy we had of it. So you see again a massive time frame, right? And you wonder to yourself, man, is, is, is the account that was written by the original people, can we trust the Old Testament that what it's saying right now is, is, is accurate? In comes the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard of the De- Dead Sea Scrolls before? You know why they're so significant? Here's why. The Dead Sea Scrolls are in fact 60,000 fragments and copies of the complete Bible except the book of Esther. And extra-biblical writings, secular writings that all refer to and affirm the, the content of the Bible. In fact, did you know that we can compile the whole Bible word for word from Extra-biblical writings. In other words, people that wrote not the Bible, but they wrote commentaries on the Bible. Or they just wrote about accounts that they lived through and they quoted the Bible or referred to places of the Bible. And they said things. We can, in, we can construct and reconstruct the entire Bible using words of people that weren't the disciples, that weren't writing Scripture. Just from the, 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 the popular literature that was written for the day. That has to be A fascinating thought for you. It is for me. The Old Testament is deemed to be more than ninety-five percent accurate, not based on assumption, based on the facts, because they saw the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm every part of your Bible that you're holding in your hand right now to be an accurate rendition of what it was before Jesus was even on the scene. Isn't that incredible? That, must, that, is, that just boggles my mind. How does that even happen? Y'all? <laughs> How does it even manage to stay that accurate? And there is a very good reason for it. By the way, remember that 5% that was, that was outstanding? It's just spelling mistakes essentially. <laughs> it means that the core truths of the Bible, its claims and all of its teachings have not changed for the, at least the last couple of thousand of years, even before Jesus arrived on the scene. That is an incredible, incredible amount of accuracy that the Bible has. Let's talk about its reliability. It was written, um, the reliability, reliability question asks is what was written true to the reality of the time? In other words, did they write about actual events that took place and who wrote it? And were they commenting on actual events, or were they just making things up? And for that, you use two tests. One, you use the internal test, and you use an external test. The internal test asks, who wrote this? Were they eyewitnesses? And who were those eyewitnesses? What does their life say about themselves, and can they be trusted? Normally, one eyewitness would count as You know, proof enough that somebody wrote this that was there and this is their account. But you know what makes historians even more happy? Is when they find a concept called multiple attestation, which means there were many eyewitnesses. And they all say the same thing about an event that took place. What they're also looking for is they're not looking for a rehearsed account. In other words, every detail of what happened is exactly the same way. You've seen detective stories, right? where they, where they uh, you know, interrogate um, s- people that were suspicious, sus- suspected of crime. And then the, the minute they have the exact same story with the exact same details, that, 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 that pulls a flag to them. is like, Mm-mm. these guys agreed beforehand what they were going to say. Well, the Gospels are not like that. That's the beauty of them. They're different in the way they describe things. They even describe certain different events, yet the core truth that they describe and when they comment on the same thing, they describe the same th- this, the, the, the 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 same truths in different ways. It makes it even more of a reliable eyewitness account than if it was just the same. Um, and then you have to think about who these people are. Think about this: they had nothing to gain but death for their claim. It wasn't like today that you can become a celebrity pastor or a celebrity you know, worship leader and you get, you get this huge Instagram account you know, and, 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 and you feel great about yourself because you think you're making a difference. No, that was not an option at that time. In fact, the more you were followed, the more you feared for your life because <laughs> you were followed to be killed, <laughs> not followed to be celebrated. These people had to make a decision. Am I going to believe this and stand by what I claim and die for it? Or am I going to admit that, oh, you know what, this wasn't really like that. Uh, Let me me rephrase what I said so that I don't have to die. Is that okay? Can, Can I get a redo? No, these guys didn't do that. They just accepted death because they knew that what they experienced, what they witnessed, and what they claimed was true. It's also said that it was proven that these guys did not just write fictional accounts. No, they actually wrote biographies of Jesus' life. Which means that it is actually found in history. It's found in reality. Not in some mystical, you know, pseudo world that was made up by people. They wrote about actual accounts. And then that coupled with the external test... Makes you see that what they wrote about was in fact historic accounts, because in the external test you look at, um, you know, is there evidence that exonerates the claims and the information in the Bible? Look, if something starts writing about something that happened in, in, in Crowley, Louisiana, in the 1950s, right, and then it gives this fanciful account of, you know, an event that took place, only to later realize that it was actually Crowley, Texas. Your whole trust in that document, then, you know, you start drawing, well, did that even really happen or did it not? If they got something simple wrong as, you know, which state it was in, what else can be trusted about this document, right? Well, the Bible does that so well because in every aspect that the Bible comments on, it has been accurate and flawless. In fact, you'll find that history confirms the Bible, science confirms the Bible, geography confirms the Bible. Um, and other secular writings of ancient times will confirm the testimony of the Scripture about things, places, information, cities, names, um, you know, events that took place. Uh, and even at times when you know, things were found in some, scri- some, some, some Bible books that they couldn't corroborate, over time those things were found. Which brings us to the last point that archaeology confirms the Bible. There's this guy called, and I find it funny, Michael Burrows. <laughs> don't you find that funny? <laughs> His last name is Burrows, and he's an archaeologist. Anyways, He's a former professor of archaeology at Yale University. He wrote, he wrote this about the Bible. On the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. It means that wherever the Bible uses a surname of a person, a last name of a person, a geographical landmark with a name, that would also be able to to be corroborated in archaeology or other extra-biblical writings on history. It is absolutely, factually flawless. That is another reason why we can trust the Bible. It is entirely reliable in the content of which it comments on. No other religious book is in existence today that can pass these claims. None. so if you're going to trust any religious book, hands down, you simply have to consider the Bible first. Let's talk about relevance. Because so what if all of it, what he's saying is true? Is it relevant today? Can it help me today? Because if the Bible claims that he's the God of all the ages, surely what he wrote should apply to me here and now, right? The deepest questions of humanity have never changed. People today still want to know, is there a God? They, t- they still want to know, who am I? Why am I here? They still want to know, what is wrong with this world? How do I fix it? And people still today want to know what happens when I die. Those are called the fundamental questions of life. Every human being answers these questions to themselves in a certain way. It's called your worldview how you view the world. The Bible teaches us a way to answer these questions that helps inform us a scriptural way to view the world that helps us find identity, purpose, solution to what is wrong and ultimate hope in what is to come. But others have also tried to put answers to these questions down. But nothing is as consistent, as logically true, as um, as sensible and uh, as the Bible. Humanism have tried. Eastern mysticism have tried. Ancestral traditionalism have tried. Even postmodernism and even today's most recent attempt to try and understand the world critical theory all have tried to explain the world but fail in comparison to what the Bible provides and how the Bible provides answers to these things. The Bible provides the most comprehensive and logical and powerful answers to all of these fundamental questions of life. No wonder 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching us what is is true and to make us realize what is wrong with this world. Um, It corrects us when we are wrong and it also teaches us what to do is right. The Bible can say that of itself because it has backed itself by the things that we've just discussed. To this day, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, each word is intentional. The Bible still provides the most positive, transformative, constructive, liberating, and empowering answers to all of these questions. There is absolutely no testimony like it around. The most beautiful part of the Bible, it also comes with an a involvement guarantee. God saying, I will not leave you nor forsake you. When you fail, I will remain faithful. It also comes with a promise that says, I will guarantee you salvation if you put your faith in the one of whom I testify in these words. His name is Jesus Christ. Romans 15 verse 4 says, Everything was written in the past. It was written for our instruction so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. The goal of the Bible is so that we might live the most hopeful lives of everyone around us. You know, the most common argument I've heard or, or in these parts is yeah but the Bible was written by man how many of you have heard that one before right that's the actual most common objection I get yeah the, the Bible written by man yeah you're right in fact you're half right to be more truthfully the Bible was written by 40 different or- authors 40 men it was written over a span of 1300 years 13 centuries think about that it was written on three continents. In other words, the authors didn't have content, contact with all of the other authors. And the crazy part of it is some of, them, some of these things were written in the tame, same time frame, but on different continents. And yet the message has never, ever contradicted itself. How is that possible? If not through intervention from uh, the actual author. That led these men to write what they wrote. It has to be that way. If you want to argue that the Bible was written by men. You're doing a good job of just saying. That God is awesomely involved in this Bible. Because no man could have written an account. That is as consistent and thorough. Accurate and reliable over so many years. On so many different continents. With so many different cultures. Just think of our experience in the United States with different perspectives of different cultures on the same matter. I mean, we, we can't even agree on, on most things in, in, in many different cultures. How in the world are you going to write a book that is supposed to provide guidance for people in life over so many centuries, so many different cultures, in so many different places at the same time and come up with the same exact message? It's impossible if not inspired by God. This book has absolute hope for us because it was written by God through the hands of men. I'm passionate about this. This makes me so excited. You know what? It still reveals the same message. And if that doesn't get your attention, there's very little that will. But it's meant to do more than just grab your attention and impress you. It's actually meant to introduce you to a message from God. You know what that message is? God made us, and He loved us. And when we chose to walk away from Him, He chased after us. He sought us out. He found us, and He made a way for us to reconcile back to Him. And today, that if you will put your faith in that, you will miraculously be made alive. Gospel is not that God came to make good men better. Gospel is that God came to make dead people alive again in Him. And that happens by our faith in Him. The Bible is meant to introduce you to this awesome, loving God who is perfect and sinless. And what we see ourselves in His light, realize that we are sinful. And we cannot be reconciled with Him unless we pay a penalty, which we can't pay and live. And that's why Jesus was necessary. Jesus had to come and die on our behalf because he would be able to live through that that consequence of mankind's sin and because he lived a perfect life his penalty didn't apply to him but now can apply to each and every one of us who will believe that testimony who will decide because of what I've heard about the Bible how reliable a document is how accurate it is how much the people who confessed about it believed in it and that it answers every single question about life in an absolutely satisfactory way I can put my faith in that core message that helps me to become a child of God. If you've never repented of your sin and made Jesus the Savior of your life, today is one of those moments where you are encouraged by the Holy Spirit to respond, to say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe what the Bible said about you. I believe what the Bible says you did for me. And I'm thankful. Thank you that you paid the penalty for my sin. I repent and I ask you to save me. But if you're saved, he's also saying to you, take this word and consume it until it consumes you. Until it renders you a person that has grown into the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. That is our goal, not to go to heaven, but to become like Jesus. So I want you to go home and remember the word rope. Because that is how we take this word, this awesome testimony of God's plan for humanity and work it into our lives and allow it to transform us into what it wants us to become. You know, ropes are are good for pulling somebody out of a mud pile or, or, or a sand pit where they got stuck in, right? A rope is good for that. You put it between two places and somebody can actually pull you out of your junk, out of your trouble. A rope is good to secure things that are valuable so they don't fly off when you're on life's journey. Ropes are also good because sometimes we need mountain climbing faith. (laughs) Sometimes mountain moving faith looks more like mountain climbing faith. And I need a rope to secure me onto that rock face in my journey up. And over that mountain. I want you to remember the word rope because the R stands for reading the Bible. Somebody asked, Do you have to read the Bible literally? I say, Start by literally reading the Bible. Get it? Do you take a daily shower or a bath? Sometimes I don't feel like taking showers, but I do. (laughs) Thankfully, reading the Bible daily is just like taking a bath. It washes your soul. You don't have to get this amazing revelation and angels singing and this encounter with God every single time you read the Bible because the Bible doesn't need your emotions to change you. It just needs you to take the words and let it flush through your soul. It, according to Hebrews 4.12, it's a living and active document. It will bring division between your soul and your spirit. Between your, it will reveal the intentions of your heart. It will confront you where you're wrong and teach you how to live right. It does that automatically. You don't have to have an emotional experience. Just get it out daily and read it. But also read it out loud because the more you hear it, the more faith comes alive to you about it. The O is for observation. It's how you treat what you read. Ask yourself, what does this reveal about God to me? Does this say anything about His character, about His intention? What can I learn of God in what I'm reading. Also ask, what what does this teach me about me? The Bible says, in His light, we see light. If you understand and learn more about who God is, you'll get to understand who you are, why you're here. Ask yourself, what actions, what commands, what um, uh, warnings are there that I need to obey? And then start praying those observations to God. Tell God what you learned. Pray it like Smith Wigglesworth said. Write it down. Pray it in. Walk it out. We have to pray the word of God. We have to pray to God. Talk to Him about what we see. Lord, I see that this says you're this. I don't feel that. Help me that my experience starts lining up with the truth that is revealed in your word. And you also pray it over your life. You start taking those promises and those principles He says, this is how my life is going to be. This is how my life is going to end up. I'm going to be the head and not the tail. I'm going to be above and not beneath. I'm going to be victorious and not a victim. You start confessing that and speaking and praying over your life. You release the power of God to change your reality as you do that. And then the E is for execution. The Bible says, don't just read it and deceive yourself. You have to obey it. And remember, obeying comes before understanding. So what I encourage you to do this week is when you read your Bible, have a pen and a paper ready. Because at the end of it, you're going to say, what am I going to do about this? How do I execute this? R-O-P-E. Write some I will statements down. I will commitments. This week, I will. And you translate what you learn into action. And even if you share that with some people around you, you can keep you accountable. That's an even greater way to make sure that you start living the Bible because as you do that, you'll see the Word of God creating in you an unquenchable, unquenchable hope and excitement and joy for life. Some preachers in the past used to use this refrain to help people just get perspective about the Bible. They would hold their Bibles up and they would say, Say this after me. This is my Bible. And they would say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I can do what it says I can do. Let that be our confession about God's Word. Let us have no doubts that this book has accurately And reliably reliably delivered God's word to us. That if we will live according to it, it will transform our lives. It will pull you out of the trouble that you're in. It will secure what is valuable to you. And it will secure you to Jesus. It will secure you to everlasting life. Let's all stand today. Maybe you've never come to a point where you have been able to trust the Bible. And and today you're ready to make that, that step. You want to put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. If that is you, I want to pray with you. But it has to start with you acknowledging that I want to believe. It has to come from your obedience but also your faith that says, I want to believe. Let's all pray. Father, thank you for this word, this precious, precious story of how you dealt with mankind over the ages to bring us into relationship with you. Father, I pray as you move on everybody's hearts right now that we will have a conviction to get this word into our spirit to get it into our lives. And as we're praying, if you want to respond today, and say yes to Jesus. Would you put up your hand right now? Say, I'll believe in what Jesus did on the cross for me and I want to put my faith in that. Just raise your hand right there where you are and we're going to pray over you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I see those hands. Thank you for your response. Won't you pray this after me? In your heart, I'll pray, and you sincerely pray this after me in your heart. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe what the Bible says about you. I believe what you did for me. I also believe that I'm I'm a sinner that is separated from you. And today I ask your forgiveness for my sin, and I put my faith in you. And I make a commitment today to believe that by your grace, today I can become a child of God. And by your grace, I will be sustained as a child of God through my faith. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.